Hi fellow brain pickers, this is episode 123 of the Can I Pick Your Brain show. Now if you're looking to start your own podcast, then reach out to me, it's danielgeffen.com forward slash podcast launch, that's danielgeffen.com forward slash podcast launch. And if you haven't purchased a copy of my book, the number one international best-selling the self-help addict, head over to amazon.com or .co.uk or wherever it is that you are in the world and uh, type in the self-help addict and uh, buy yourself a copy. Um, really appreciate all of you who have already bought a copy. And if you have bought a copy, of course, I would love a, uh, a great Amazon testimonial if you can. This episode is going to be very exciting. I have Michael Neal on the show, who is a best-selling author and transformational coach, and we talk about how to achieve the impossible in a very unlikely way. Here's the show. Welcome to the Can I Pick Your Brain podcast, where successful entrepreneurs get their brains picked so you can apply mindset tricks and game-changing tactics that will help you become unstoppable. Now, here's your host, Daniel Geffen. Hey, fellow brain pickers, and welcome to episode 123 of Can I Pick Your Brain? You know that voice in your head that tells you it's impossible? Who is that voice and where did it come from? My guest today went from being a depressed and suicidal teen to not only transforming his life, but transforming the lives of thousands of others. Michael Neal is a world-renowned transformation coach and best-selling author of six books, including Creating the Impossible, The Inside Out Revolution, and The Space Within. He's also the host of the Living from the Inside Out show, and his TEDx talk, Why Aren't We Awesomer, has been viewed by over 200,000 people. Now, as always, I've prepared a short rap to help introduce my guest. Here goes. From depression and suicide, this guy's got a smile so wide. Reading his book, I cried. There was a part of him that died. Living from the inside out, there's no need to shout. A mind full of mess, the thoughts that used to oppress. The ones that cause you to stress and obsess, thinking that's the way to success. Anything is possible within reach. This is his mission. His goal is to teach. The message delivered in his powerful speech. His words penetrate your heart. This is his art. So where do I begin? Where do we start? Get ready to have your beliefs torn apart. There's no need to reinvent the wheel. This guy's the real deal. He's the one and only Michael Neal. Michael, welcome to the show and thanks honey pick your brain wow you win you absolutely win the best introduction i've gotten in 30 years of doing this congratulations there'll be a prize in the mail yeah what's the prize i'm excited well i don't know i haven't made it up right. yet, but i mean you know, <laughs> we'll get there seriously the best introduction in 30 years jeez man that's no, i can you. tell you i can tell you the worst actually I, I i was doing a talk in london and this guy came up <laughs> And stood in front of people looking really bored and said, yeah, there's this guy over here from America who's going <laughs> to talk to us about body language and stuff. So don't let him see anything. <laughs> Are you kidding? That's for real? That actually happened? That oh was my. for real. That actually happened. That was that was genuinely like awful because <laughs> the whole group just sat staring at me frightened from, for the first half hour. Oh, my God. That's hilarious. Wow. Michael, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Um, I actually I read your book, Inside Out. And, uh, and I can't wait to read your new book, which is Creating the Impossible. And it's interesting because when I saw the title of the book, I kind of thought to myself, mm, 
has this guy changed tracks or something? You know, first he's talking about, <clears throat> you know, inside out and kind of just not needing to do anything, right? And then suddenly now it's creating the impossible, the 90-day journey and how to, you know, achieve anything or whatever it is. And I was like, hmm, that sounds like there's a bit of a paradox there. So I want to get into that. But before we do, I also want my audience to get to know a little bit more about about who you are as a person. So can you give us a, a brief background of, you know, what were you like growing up? Well, I think when I look at pictures of me as a, as a little kid, I look really happy. Um, and then somewhere in my, my teen years, it just went south. And, and it, no particular reason. Like, I, 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 I can't blame family. I can't blame some deep, dark trauma. Mm -hmm. Just my head went funny. <laughs> and uh, and it was pretty bad. I, I didn't even realize it was bad, though, because it was my normal. So at the time, I just, yeah, I thought about suicide all the time. And I thought people with guns were hiding in, you know, I, like I'm sitting in my office right now and I can see where the men with guns would have been back oh, then. Goodness. But, but genuinely, I didn't think that was weird. Like I just assumed everybody that was what life was like for everybody. And it was oh, oh, as I got older that I, I started to, to realize, oh, maybe this is a problem because whenever I'd mention it to people, they'd freak out. <laughs> right. And, don't don't and, mention and, it on the and, first and, date. Yeah. And, it, and so it did. It became more and more problematic. And it, 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 it came to a head one night where I had the experience I described in the TED Talk of being sort of sucked out of my fourth floor dorm window by a giant vacuum cleaner from hell. <laughs> And I mean, it's not, I mean, look, I can't talk about it and make it sound, I mean, I make it sound so light. It was not light at the time. Hmm. But, but what happened was I, I, I went to call the suicide hotline and, and I got a busy signal. Oh my goodness. And that's hilarious. I just thought that was hysterical. Like even in the midst of it all, <laughs> you got a busy signal me out of it. on the suicide <laughs> it's like, hotline. On, what's going to happen next is going to rain on me. Oh my God. And, and, and and that was the beginning of my my beginning to see something about the nature of thought that that we have a lot of thought going on in our head and it seems really real, but maybe it's not as real as we think it is. And and from then I, I went on a personal growth journey and a spiritual growth journey and I I, I tried every course going and every book mm -hmm. going. Yeah. And I worked in New Age bookshops and I worked in psychology bookshops mm -hmm. and. And I became a, a you know very successful NLP first practitioner, then master practitioner, then trainer, then master trainer. I taught with uh, you know big big five six hundred people groups with Paul McKenna and Richard Bandler. Hmm. And then I had what I, I wish I could call something other than a spiritual epiphany, because that sounds kind of grandiose to me. Mm -hmm. But I I really absolutely saw beyond a shadow of a doubt that I was fine. That, in fact, everybody was fine, that we were all born happy, and that we just think ourselves crazy from time to time. Hmm. And it changed everything. It changed the nature of my work. It changed the nature of my life. I had been what I would call a very successful, high-functioning depressive for many, many <laughs> years. And then suddenly I was happy, and it really threw me. And I had to kind of relearn how to live, not as a high-functioning, broken person, Mm -hmm. but as a just a genuinely happy guy and and that's been the basis of my work for the last 10 years that's been the basis of the the trilogy the inside out revolution space within and creating the impossible you mentioned it's interesting how you said 
and you're almost embarrassed to say it, the spiritual epiphany, and you kind of you brush it off. You kind of say, "Well, yeah, I can almost call it that." Why? Why do you think that um, people think that's weird to say that you had a spiritual epiphany? And 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 the second thing I wanted to ask you is is why do you? Actually, I'm not going to say why do you think because we're we're moving away from thoughts. Uh, how do you know that it was a, a, that it was spiritual? Well, the first the first part, the embarrassment. <laughs> I, I think when I hear stuff like that, it's the same as look. I you, the way you did it, I didn't have time to get embarrassed. But you know, sometimes when people read out my my bio, mm -hmm. um, I, I I expect Tony Robbins to come out on stage <laughs> instead of me. Why? Because the truth is, I have done a lot of really cool things, but I don't think of myself as a particularly cool guy. I've just been around a long time, and I'm good at what I do. And and I kind of think it's the same thing with, with spiritual epiphany, as I expect that the person who says that should be wearing white robes and meditating and eating vegetables and stuff. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm, I'm so normal, it's kind of dull. Right. The reason that I say it's spiritual and the reason that I, it, it was an absolute knowing it mm -hmm. is because it was beyond all of my psychology. It, it had nothing to do with anything that had gone before. It wasn't a natural conclusion of a train of thought I'd been writing. It, it literally came from nothing and was so obvious that it was like I was walking in a different world after than I had been before. One of my clients mm -hmm. once described it as nothing changed, but everything is different. That's so amazing. And it's and it sounds incredible. It sounds magical. I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are saying, wow, it sounds like utopia if you can live like that all your life. And a lot of us have a spiritual awakening. And, and for those that don't believe in, in spiritual, we have an awakening of consciousness or whatever you want to call it. It doesn't really matter. But we have that moment in our lives where we suddenly get this light bulb flash of inspiration or clarity of purpose and just realizing that everything's... It could be that someone passed away, right, at a funeral, or it could be at a, 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 you know when you give birth to your first child. Or, do you know what I mean? That those moments usually are when we get that, oh my goodness, nothing else matters. Like, this is so amazing. Um, the problem is keeping well, you know, it. For, for, for me, those moments are, are, are that perfect blend of, of the ordinary and the special. Because, like, take having a baby. Anyone who's, who's been around, almost anyone, will we'll talk about that as one of the most special moments of their life. Mm -hmm. And yet, if you think about it, it's the most ordinary thing in the world. Mm. And, and for me, that's how I think about what I'm calling spiritual, or we could call it an awakening of consciousness. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it is so special for you when it happens, but it's a really ordinary thing that happens for people all the time to one degree or another. But how do you, I get, I get, I get that, but how do you bottle that, keep it and, and live day to day? Um, I, I'll give you an example and I'm, I work very hard on myself and maybe that's a problem. I don't know. Right. But, um, I was sitting at home about three hours ago I was working from home. I had my laptop open and I was actually preparing for this interview. I was just sort of doing a bit of research into you. I was writing up the rap song that I just did. And, um, and my wife came home and my son is sitting there at the table eating. And I'm watching your YouTube video that you did 
the, uh, sorry, the TEDx on YouTube. And yeah. my wife says to me, she's like, I thought you're working. Why are you watching videos? <sighs> you know, it's like, that's what happened inside, right? There's like this, I, I have are a you wife. kidding me? Like, are you freaking, I'm working. And, what are you? and, I, and I like, I, I even like, I ripped off my headphones and I got up and I was just like, Oh my goodness. Okay, that's it. And I, I closed my laptop and I put it in my bag. I'm like, I'm leaving. I, you, just, you just really just, you know how to push me to the edge. And I can see my son is watching this. And inside, I'm thinking, Daniel, don't do this. For, for only, for, for, even if it's just for the fact that you don't want your son to see this side of you. Don't show him this side of you. But I couldn't help myself. I was in the moment and I was so boiling because she just didn't understand. She didn't trust me. She didn't know that I was watching a video of, of a guest I'm about to interview. Like, you know, and I just kind of lost it. And I, I huffed and puffed and I went out. And thankfully, she was the stronger one this time. And she said, honey, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to do that. I, you know, I just thought that you were just watching a random video. And I was like, and I said, well, I wish you trust, you know, you trusted me more. And she said, no, I understand. I'm really sorry. And, and I'm like, okay. And I gave her a hug and I, and I gave her a kiss and I could see in the corner of my eye, my son smiling. The reason I brought that up is that picture right there. It's like, that happens all the time. And as much as I don't want it to happen, as much as I just want it to always just be like living on this sort of spiritual cloud, it, it just isn't realistic. Well, what here, let me, let me give you my interpretation of the scene you just, you just painted. Mm -hmm. So you were working, you were, you were watching this bit, your wife comes home and she probably has been kind of exasperated with with your son all day she's you, you know or whatever she's she's in her head and she's yeah. frustrated she sees you lying about watching a video in her mm -hmm. mind and she and she, and and there's a voice in her head that says don't do this he's probably working but she overrides the voice and she says rah, 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 rah. and then you go you you don't even have time to think you're just rah, 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 rah. and you hear a voice in your head a, a, a sort of a wiser quieter voice saying Daniel, don't do this, but you override it. Hmm. And then the, in round three, the voice in her head that says, I don't know her name, but it says, hey, Lauren, don't do this, wins. And you hmm. guys come back to yourselves. That's the human condition. We have our psychology, which is reactive and conditioned. Mm -hmm. And we have this deeper wisdom, knowing, understanding, perspective that that does see what's wanted and needed in any situation. And from moment to moment, either wisdom is louder or our psychology is louder. And the more you sort of learn to listen to and trust the wisdom, the more often the wisdom wins. But the psychology will always be there. So there isn't mm. in my mind, and I've been doing this, like I say, almost 30 years, I, I've not met anyone who isn't human, who doesn't have that one. It's just that over time, you, it happens a bit less and you do less damage when it does. So you're kind of saying it's like the story with the little boy and the grandfather and the, 
and the grandfather tells him about how there's two wolves that live in your head and and mm-hmm. they, there's a good wolf and a good wolf and a bad wolf and and they, they they're constantly fighting each other right and then and then the grandchild says you know the little boy says so you know who wins and he says the one you feed the most the one you feed more and it, and, and it's like that with one variation mm-hmm. is that whenever i had heard that story i i always thought that it was an act of personal will to make sure I fed the right wolf. Okay. Like, like I should practice feeding the right wolf. I mm-hmm. should make sure I, I, I need a program of wolf feeding. <laughs> um, and, and what I came to see is that when you see that it's not really two wolves, but it's uh, an incredible, loyal, and loving golden retriever and a, 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 a sickly coyote, it's it's obvious that you're going to feed your pet and not the, mm. you know, not not the stray pack animal. So it doesn't take effort. It doesn't take an incredible amount of discernment. It doesn't take practice. Mm-hmm. It, it it just takes clear seeing. And 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 that's what I talk about in all my books is insight. That's that's another word that I could use for that insight I had when when I suddenly saw that I wasn't broken. That, that there was nothing wrong with me, that there's nothing wrong with anyone. They just think too much. Okay, first of all, um, I mean, that, that that's a bold statement to make, right? To say that there's nothing wrong with anyone. Um, let, let's, let's take one example. You were mm-hmm. able to cure people from phobias, serious, serious phobias, people who literally, I mean, let's take the spider as example, right? There were mm-hmm. people who were petrified of of spiders even if they saw a picture of it they would freak out it's like my mother my mother if i even say the word rat oh, 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 she, she she runs out the room i just said a word yeah. i just said a word you didn't even see it you were able to take people on stage in public and and show um that this show the audience how in how long did you spend with the with the uh patients 20 to 30 minutes wow so in 20 to 30 minutes, you were able to cure their phobia, their lifetime phobia. And at, by the end, they were even able to hold a real uh, spider in their hands, which is incredible. Um, and you used a tactic called, I believe, NLP, right? Neurolinguistic mm-hmm. Programming. So are you saying that you don't need NLP in order to do that? Are you saying that there's nothing wrong with them? Of course there's something wrong with them. They, they have a phobia of something that's mostly harmless, right? 99% of the time, a spider is harmless. Is that not something wrong? There's, a, there's an issue. There's a problem. You need to solve the problem. So we use tactics like psychology to cure that. Well, look, I, I'm, not, I, 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 I'm not stupid. I know what you mean. But by the same token, I, I don't think that that is necessarily the most accurate interpretation of the data that because somebody has been uh, a conditioned response to a stimulus that there's anything wrong with them in fact it's because they work perfectly that they're able to have that conditioned response to stimulus work every time they never forget to have their phobia so all all we're doing in that instance and it isn't something i do anymore and i I can go into that if you want but all we're doing in that instance is kind of showing the brain hey 
this might have been a, a useful response at one point, but it's not necessary now. It, it, it's like take a kid who's, who's about to cross the street. Uh, you know, they're about to run into the street when they're mm-hmm. three years old after a ball. And, and the, the parent screams, no! And because the, the only two fears that we are preconditioned with biologically, as, as it has been taught to me, are loud noises and falling. That loud noise triggers a primal fear in the, in the brainstem, and an association gets made between the, the, the fear response, the freeze response, and running into the street. And so sure enough, the kid's going to be scared, too scared to run into the street. Now, when they're three and in the moment, that was incredibly useful. That, that the body was able to protect itself, even mm-hmm. without the kid's brain being developed enough to understand why. But once you're about five, you don't run into the street because you know how cars work and, and, and you understand about physics a little bit. Mm-hmm. And the fear no longer serves a purpose. It's just residual. And so the fact that we can clear some residual programming is, is kind of a neat thing about our psychology. That's not about us being broken. That's about us not understanding how the system works. And then if we learn how the system works, we can use it better. Hmm. So, I, you know, I, I mentioned to you this just before we went live. I said to you, you know, I've done 123 episodes, and yet I still feel like pissing my pants when, when I'm about to get on and, and introduce the guest, right? I have those butterflies in my stomach, and I have those thoughts that go... What do you do with, with what do you do with that, or would you just you just ignore it? Do you what do you do? I mean, pretty pretty much. I mean, in fact, one of the one of the first inklings that I got that there was something a little bit off about the way I was thinking about people before my 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 I'll call it a spiritual insight mm-hmm. was was I was on stage and we were doing phobias phobia cures on public speaking. And my, my colleague was working with somebody, and, and when they first were talking about their phobia, it was at a t- 10, 10 out of 10. And, you know, they got, got coaxed up onto the stage and worked with them and got it down to about a three. And I thought that was brilliant. I thought it was a really nice piece of work. But then my colleague said, no, three's not good enough. We're going to get you down to a one. And spent another hour trying to get it down to a one. And, and in the end, whether he just wore the guy down or, or <laughs> something actually changed, I don't know. But maybe after an hour, the guy just got used to being on stage. Right. Well, I thought about that and I thought, well, you know what? Sometimes I'm at a three and I've been doing this for years. Sometimes I'm at a one. Occasionally I get up to a five. But so what? That doesn't, that doesn't stop me. And in fact, I know that once I get out of my own head and start engaging with people, it all goes away. So basically, if once I, I didn't understand it then, but when I look at it now, when we are self-conscious, in other words, when we, our consciousness is filled with our thinking about us, mm-hmm. how am I doing? How am I going to come across? What if I blow it this time? Burr, burr, burr. Yeah. We're going to feel uncomfortable. That's self-consciousness. That's what happens when we become overly, it's like holding a mirror too close to your face. It distorts everything. Mm-hmm. When we get our attention off of us, out of our head and back out into the world, we naturally feel the feelings of aliveness, the feelings of well-being, the feelings of okayness. 
Mm-hmm. That's just how the system works. If we understand that, it's no big deal. It doesn't mean there's something wrong. It means you're holding the mirror too close to your face. And as soon as you drop it, you'll be fine. Are you talking about mindfulness? Is that what you're describing? Well, see, mindfulness, the effect of mindfulness is similar to what I'm talking about. Mindfulness, as I usually hear it talked about, is is a practice. It, it's a practice of being conscious of things in the present moment. Now, at its best, it does facilitate presence. We, we become more present to life. Mm-hmm. What I see very often is that it becomes self-consciousness. So we start not just being aware of what we're doing with our hands, but judging what we're doing with our hands and thinking we should be doing something else with our hands. And, and that takes us in the exact opposite direction. Hmm. It's we all do really well in life when we are not the central character in our head. And we all struggle when we are. Right. And yet, it's almost impossible to be free from your thoughts entirely. Well, yeah, no, and it do you want to be? Is but they can become. Well, here, here, here's here, here's a metaphor, and it's just a metaphor. But if you think of consciousness like the sky, and clouds like thoughts, which is not a bad metaphor because thoughts come and go and yeah. take different shapes, and sometimes they're dark, and sometimes they're light and fluffy, and sometimes there are less of them, and sometimes there are more. I don't think the sky cares how many clouds are in it. Okay. Now, when we're down on the ground and we don't feel like the sky, then it really matters to us what the clouds are doing. So when we're over-identified with our, our little S self, the, the little me, the, mm-hmm. the ego mind, the, um, the character, well, then, yeah, the, the clouds seem like they really matter because what if it rains and spoils my parade? Mm-hmm. But when I'm conscious of my my sky nature, that the thoughts are happening inside my mind, they're not happening to me, they're happening within me, mm-hmm. well then I don't particularly mind about the weather because I know the weather changes and I don't have to do anything about it. It may rain for a while and then the sun will come back out. And if I get wet, well, then I'll dry off because that's how it works. Interesting. Yeah, I, I wrote a book called The Self-Help Addict and in one of the chapters towards the end, I titled it um, Being and Becoming because for me, if you're just doing and doing and doing and producing and climbing that mountain, that proverbial mountain, you'll never be happy because you're just constantly just climbing and climbing and climbing. There's no end. Um, but at the same time, if you sit on the mountain and just kind of hum, you know, just look at mm. how beautiful the world is, so then you're just not achieving anything, right? So you need to have the balance of the two. You need to know how to climb the mountain, but every now and again, stop, look down the mountain, see, wow, look how far I came, and wow, look how beautiful is it is over here, and look, I'm so, you know, blessed to have everything I have in my life. But then at the same time, you've got to look back up the mountain and say, you know what? I want to be a better father. I want to be a better 
um, you know, friend. I want to be, you know, I want to have more, more money so I can be able to, to enjoy more things in life and give more. So let me, let me give you a description of a person. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they sit around all day and they, they don't really do anything. And when they think about doing something, they kind of go, well, there's no point. Is that person enlightened or depressed? Depressed. Yeah. But that's what people think enlightenment is like. Oh, well, if I was happy being, if mm-hmm. I was content, I would just sit around all day and not do anything and talk myself out of do anything because what's the point? Because I can be happy no matter what. There is a motive force in us. There is a, a deeper intelligence, a deeper unfolding. I call it the universal mind. You, you can call it whatever you like. It's the, it's the thing that, that, that turns seeds into plants and causes be- grapefruit trees to grow grapefruits. Okay. It, it's in humans as well. And actually, the, the fear is, oh, if I'm content, if I'm not working on myself, I'll just sit around and accept everything that is and not do anything. Right. And nothing could be further than the truth. Happy people are generally very active, very involved in the world, very engaged in their lives. Not to a neurotic, crazy extent, mm-hmm. but they're, they're, they're engaged because that's part of the movement in them expressing without a lot of resistance. Like the water is flowing through the hose, there are no kinks in the hose, so it pours through. That's sort of the heart of creating the impossible. You said, is this book written by a different guy? No, it's an expression of that inner contentment expressing itself through you. It's being used by for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one, like George Bernard Shaw talked about. Mm-hmm. It's actually natural that as we relax, as we get more comfortable with being, doing shows up. Hmm. That's interesting. And so, essentially, I think what I'm thinking in my head when, as you're describing that is I'm thinking of, of um, a child, right? I have uh, four children. So, I've got a 10-year-old, uh, an 8-year-old, a 5-year-old, and then a 1-year-old. Now, hmm. <laughs> interestingly, the 1-year-old kind of just bumbles around and doesn't give a crap about anything he just kind of just does whatever he experiments explores and isn't afraid of anything i mean just literally mm-hmm. just doesn't care um then the five-year-old is more cautious and more careful but still quite carefree and still doesn't you know but does get upset by certain things and then of course the seven-year-old is even more and then the 10-year-old is like the most and of course your teenagers forget about it <laughs> we're screwed right are, are you kind of, in a way, saying that you need to just go back to being that one-year-old where you just you just experiment in life? You just kind of, hey, what's this? Let's tug on that. I don't know what's going to happen, but hey, you know, oh, um, this looks cool. Oh, they're going to scream at me. They might, you know, say, what are you doing? I don't care. Like, do you know what I mean? Well, like, here, here, here's the, there's something, Ken Wilber, the spiritual philosopher talks about something he calls the pre-trans fallacy and what he what he's pointing to is that we look at the pre-conscious state which is your one-year-old and we see that it resembles the transpersonal state which is the, the the enlightened being because the enlightened being has that same freedom of movement that same um 
uh, ability to just be totally present regardless of circumstances and to be upset when they're upset and then go back to being happy in mm. a heartbeat. Yeah. Well, the, the reason that it's a fallacy is because it's like being a one-year-old, but it's not the same as being a one-year-old because a one-year-old genuinely doesn't know, doesn't have consciousness, doesn't have the ability to think rationally. So the transpersonal state is is where we're all headed anyways. So it is a return to Eden. It is one of my favorite um, poems is by T.S. Eliot, and I quoted in, in the beginning of The Space Within. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. Hmm. So it is a return to that one-year-old state, but not with the ignorance of a one-year-old. It's mm. innocence, not ignorance. Mm, I like that a lot. Yeah, and it's interesting because you see old people, it, it's funny because old people rem, kind of remind you of children, right? Like mm -hmm. we, we, we treat old people like we, we treat children. They, they look cute and you know, they can't really do anything wrong. Like if they you know, mess up on something, we forgive them much quicker, right? There's something about the elderly that we just have that you know that instant trust and and it's you know what it, i think it's vulnerability they're vulnerable right and so just like a child is vulnerable and, and they can't harm me you know the reason why i'm not a, afraid of a child like you see this like typical teenager who's got like nose rings and tattoos and he's always angry and you know anyone who talks to him is he's just <laughs> but put him in front of a child by himself suddenly he changes he could be himself mm -hmm. he smiles he's like hey how you doing kiddo you know why because his defenses are completely dropped they're gone he he's not threatened by this this child the child can't do anything to him the child doesn't judge him in any way and so in a way it's the same thing with old people as well um i don't know where i'm going with this michael i really don't well, i i, I can i can go somewhere with it yeah if that would be be worthwhile which Please. is that it the bit of that that's absolutely dead on is that when we don't see the world around us as frightening we all do really well mm. we're all really kind of nice people right we might you know there's no accounting for tastes you know we might not like everybody but 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 people are fine it's just that what happens is we learn to be scared of everything we learn to always be on our guard. We learn to always be in that defense mode. And so consequently, we experience the world as a scary place. Of course, we're going to be defensive. If we can start to discern actual danger from the thousands and thousands and thousands of imaginary dangers that we live within our heads, mm -hmm. life just gets a lot less scary. We don't become... You know, it doesn't mean we go playing in rattlesnake nests. It just means we can tell the difference between a rattlesnake and a harmless snake. Right. Right. So your book about achieving um, the impossible. Um, I mean, how is it practical to, to achieve anything? I mean, obviously there are certain things that we can't, we can't achieve because we don't have the skill set. We don't have, you know, the, the resources or whatever it is. So when you say you can achieve anything you want, you can achieve, you know, 
the impossible. Um, and and what I what I also found fascinating was the, the fact that you said that you can achieve anything that's impossible. You can achieve the impossible even if you don't believe that it's possible. Meaning, even without the self belief, you could still so, achieve so, it. Okay, so let me let me do a little clarifying because I'm pretty sure I don't say. You can achieve anything you want, in my American voice. (laughs) Um, What what, what the program is about, it's called a 90-day program to get your dreams out of your head and into the world. Mm -hmm. And most dreams are thought to death, and that's why they never happen. And one of the thoughts that most often, like the ultimate dream killer thought, is there's no point, it's impossible. Yeah. So the point of the book is to get people to reevaluate their psychic abilities. Right, Because we act like the fact that I don't think I can do it is an actual indication of whether or not I can do it. The fact that I don't think something can come to pass is meaningful. The fact that you don't think something is going to come to pass just means you can't think of a way that it could happen right now. Hmm. So impossible isn't a real thing. Impossible is a line we draw in the sand in our minds, and we stop looking at the far side of the line not realizing, A, that we drew the line, and B, that where we put the line was arbitrary. Hmm. So really what this is a book about is opening back up to a place of infinite possibility inside us where we haven't pre-decided, we haven't drawn a line, or if we've drawn a line, we don't take it so seriously, and we're willing to explore. So this is where we get back to being more like your one-year-old. Right? And we will find some things work better than others when we explore. But the how is the dream killer in that sense. Thinking we need to know how is why we never begin. And a huge thing that I've seen in, in almost 30 years of working with people, and, and often very high achievers, is they don't let not knowing how stop them. Hmm. They just start. And the how emerges. It doesn't mean everything you take on is going to work. That's not true for anyone. It means that if you take yourself out of the game, it definitely won't work. And we take ourselves out of the game before we start, the first time that something goes wrong, if it's taken too long, if somebody tells us it's not going to work. We have so many great reasons to stop playing. But the number one reason people lose the game is they stop playing. Mm. that's the message in the book. That's why I wrote it. That's why I dedicated it to, to Michael, age 17, because, boy, I wish I knew that when I was 17. Wow. That's very powerful. It's like, it's like the quote uh, from the founder of LinkedIn that um, uh, he jumps out uh, and jumps off the cliff and builds the plane on the way down. I've not heard that, but that's nice. I've got a story in the book. I, I was giving a talk to a, a, a group of local business leaders in the, in the town I grew up in, in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And one of, the, one, of, one of the guys raised his hand at one point and said, well, it, it sounds like you're telling us that we should just fly by the seat of our pants. Mm. And I said, well, what I'm yes. actually telling you is the seat of your pants has wings. In other <laughs> words, we're made to work that way. I like that one. <laughs> where do I get where do I get a pair of pants with wings? <laughs> You've already got them. They're called your big boy pants. Oh. Oh man, I got to I got to I've got to take out those wings. They're very dusty. It's interesting <laughs> actually cuz um 
I actually wrote a story in in, in my book as well, uh, which was about a farmer who uh, he you know, had this shed. He was an old farmer. He had this shed that he hadn't cleaned in years. And, uh, and he decided one day that he was going to spend the day, you know, finally cleaning the shed, right? So he, uh, he goes in and he starts, you know, picking up all the hay and, you know, putting it to, to one side and starting to sweep. And, you know, everything was just all over the place. He started just organizing and slowly, slowly it started to look a, a little bit, you know, better. And then he started to wipe the windows down and then he noticed that the roof needed fixing. So he got up on the roof and he started fixing the roof. And just before sunset, he had finally finished and it looked completely brand new. I mean, he took a step back and he just looked at it and thought, oh, wow. You know, all that hard work really paid off. He was so happy with himself. And as he's walking back home for dinner, he suddenly panics he notices that his wristwatch is missing. And this watch was given to him by his grandfather. And so it's got a tremendous sentimental value. It's priceless. And he panics and he runs back into the, into, the, into the barn to try to find it. But he can't find it, so he's throwing everything all over the place. He's frantically grabbing the hay and chucking it. And, you know, everything's just going everywhere. And after about an hour of desperately trying to search for the watch, the barn looks worse than it, than it actually looked before he started cleaning it. Uh, but he gives up. It's been a long day. He's too tired and he walks out completely miserable. And suddenly he hears a bunch of children in the distance. He can hear that the school bus arrived and he sees all these school children. And he suddenly has an idea. He calls over the, the school children. He says, hey, who wants a nice big chocolate bar? And of course, they all screamed, me, me, I want. And he said, okay, well, in that barn is my watch. I can't find it anywhere. Whoever finds my watch gets a big bar of chocolate. So they all run into the barn like, you know, oh my goodness. Yeah, and, they, and half an hour goes by and the sun is already setting and it gets dark and none of them can find it. They're just chucking everything all over the place. And one by one, they come out defeated. And this farmer just gives up and he's so sad and he, he, he starts making his way home. Suddenly, he feels a tug on his shirt and he turns around and there's this little boy looking up at him and says, he says, please, farmer, um, can I find your watch? And the farmer says, no, 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 go home. I already had a bunch of kids looking for it. I spent an hour already in there and it's already dark. You're not going to see anything. Just don't waste your time. Just go home. And this little boy looks up at him with his big wide eyes and he says, please, sir, just give me five minutes. I'll find it. So the farmer just, you know, he feels, okay, fine, you know, whatever. If five minutes go in there, but doesn't expect anything, right? After two minutes, this little boy comes walking out, proudly holding this watch in his hand. And the farmer runs to him and grabs the watch and says to him, how did you find it? I don't understand. We had, I looked for it everywhere and all the kids were running around. Nobody found it. And you went in there in the dark and you found it. How? And this little boy smiles and he says, it was very easy. I walked into the barn. I sat down in the middle on the floor and I just listened till I can hear the faint tick tock of the watch. Very nice story. You ever heard that one before, Michael? No, I actually haven't. That was I was I was wrapped. It was good, huh? 
That is very good. I love that. So let me ask you a question. Yeah. You you said that thing about you don't even have to believe in yourself. Now, I've Mm. known you for all of about 35, 40 minutes. So (laughs) I'm perfectly prepared to be inaccurate about this. Okay. When you set out to do this podcast, not ours today, but in the first place, Mm-hmm. Did you believe you were going to create the number one podcast in business entrepreneurship? <laughs> no. Yeah, you don't sound to me like somebody who would, <laughs> right? Right. Well, that didn't stop you. Why not? Um, my book that I wrote, I really wrote it for me because I was a self-help addict. I still am a self-help addict. And, and, but what changed in my life was that I realized that the more I took action – the more the feelings followed. So what, what you realized is that creating what we want in the world is not dependent on believing in yourself or how you feel. Right. If people saw that, they would create so much more in their lives with so much less stress and pressure than they put on themselves when they think they've got to get their head right in order to create. I've worked in, in, in and around Hollywood for, for about 20 years now. And I got to tell you, the most creative people are rarely the most together. Um, I, I worked with a, a, a comedian once who, who I, I jokingly said to him, I, I'm sorry, am I not giving you enough praise? And he said, ah, don't worry about it. It's, it's a black hole. Uh-huh. Now, this is a guy who had Emmys and, and, and you know, TV shows and super successful. And yet he had, he had no self-esteem. He just realized he didn't need it in order to go out and do what he loved to do in the world and do it at a really, really high level. Well, that's true for all of us. Of course, you need to develop skills, but you can develop them along the way. Hmm. What you really need to do is begin. So let's end on that. You need to begin. So for those listening, what should that beginning look like? Practically speaking, what should their first step, so to speak, be? Well, the way I talk about it, and and this is true in my mind of all creative process. So I've got a a, a Facebook group called a, A Year of Creating the Impossible, hashtag daily creation, where people just go on and create something from nothing every day. And that, that's an exercise that I really encourage people to try for at least a week if they've never done it. Mm-hmm. And, and the only rule is that at the beginning of the day, it doesn't exist in the world. And at the end of the day, it does. And it can be as, as simple as a, you know, a little line drawing, a, you know, like a stick figure. It can be a nice meal. It can be a business meeting. It can be... Um, I don't know, people do some actually incredible things on there. Mm-hmm. You, can, you can check out because they post the pics. But yeah. the point being, the creative process is always the same. You start with nothing, and then you start messing around. You start mucking about. And at some point in that playing around, exploring like your one-year-old, trying stuff, you get a glimpse of something, and you start to follow it, like, like pulling on a thread, and you start to follow that thread, and it starts to take you somewhere. And then once you've found a thread, you, you, you start doing the work. You start putting in the hours. And then over time, along the way, you kind of find the flow where you get so absorbed in your work that it doesn't feel like work. But then you go back, it feels like work again, and you do the work. And then at a certain point, you decide you're done. Hmm. 
you, you declare completion. Yeah. You, 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 you take the lid off the dish and step away from the table. Hmm. And that's the creative process. And it always begins with nothing. And it always starts with some kind of messing about. I, I sometimes use the analogy of flirting, dating, engaging, and marriage. Right? Commitment. Hmm. That, that you, you, most people know that you probably want to flirt before you go on too many dates. And mm. if the flirting goes well, then maybe you go on the dates. And if the dates go well, then maybe you get engaged. And if the engagement goes well, then you, then you commit. But when it comes to creating in the then world... You gotta start we, flirting we to, again. Then you've got to start flirting again, Michael. <laughs> well, there you go. Otherwise, but, but it's true. When you, no, but yeah. when, you come, when it comes to creating in the world, people try to skip flirting and dating. Mm. And they want to commit. Well, good luck with that. I mean, you can, you absolutely can, but you're going to wind up overcommitted to a bunch of things you don't really care about and you don't really enjoy. Hmm. And so giving yourself permission to flirt and date is, is, is where it begins. Not needing it to work, not needing this one to be the one. And then the world's your oyster. I like that. There's no commitment to flirting with someone, right? Isn't it? I don't need to marry them. I just, I'm just flirting. Just, you know, just flirting with the, with the podcast show. Just seeing what happens, right? Just getting in front of a mic and seeing what happens. And then, oh, that, that was good. Let's date. Let's do a couple of episodes. Let's see what happens. Oh, now, wow. Then I get engaged to it because it's like, wow, this is really working out. And then I'm married to it and it's a commitment and it's, it's enjoyable, right? That's, I mean, that's a beautiful description. That's a beautiful example. Hmm. Amazing. Michael, this has been absolutely incredible. And I'm sure a lot of my, my listeners will, will want to find out more, get in touch with you. How do they do that? Uh, michaelneal.org is, is my playground on the web. That's where <laughs> we have all our, our videos and blogs and podcasts and fun stuff. Brilliant. So michaelneal.org and that link will be in the show notes as well as all the other resources that we have discussed. And if you want to get that, you just go to www.danielgeffen.com forward slash 123. Look at that. That's a cool episode number right there. Episode nice. one, one, two, three. Michael, thank you so much for letting me pick your brain. And thank you to all my fellow brain pickers. I'm looking forward to the day when I'll be picking your brain. You've been listening to the Can I Pick Your Brain podcast. Inspiration without perspiration is like a tiger without teeth. So to put these ideas into action, head over to danielgeffen.com.